You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, the podcast where you can discover what you need to know about cybersecurity. To learn more, visit us at cybersecurityinside.com. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me is my co-host, Camille Morhart. Hi, Tom. Well, today we're embarking on a topic where we've sort of touched on a few times, but not really in-depth, and that's quantum computing and post-quantum computing? And how do we build in security capabilities that are going to be able to withstand the the onslaught of quantum computers trying to hammer them in the future? You know, we're right in the middle of this massive problem that we all know is coming, and yet it's very difficult to really understand the, you know, the underlying algorithms and things that may pull us out of it. But we all have to understand what the implications are and the various kinds of defenses we can use today to help start to protect ourselves. And this is an interesting conversation about that. Yeah. And some point, not in this episode, but at some point, hopefully we get an even better understanding of what does quantum computing even actually mean? I understand how transistors work and the logic that I, I learned when I was in school, but man, this stuff is uh, just mind bending. But our guest does a very good job of talking about the implications of quantum computing and what we need to do to stay safe. So what do you say we get into it? Love it. Our guest today is Michele Mosca. He is co-founder, president, and CEO of Evolution Q and co-founder of the Institute of Quantum Computing at the University of Waterloo. Welcome to the podcast, Michele. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here, Tom. I think it'd be great to start with a topic like quantum computing because we've all heard about it, uh, but I don't think a lot of people really understand what it is. Do you have maybe a layman's definition of what quantum computing is? Yeah. So just first a caution that quantum people mean many different things often when they say quantum or quantum computing. And it's based on quantum physics, which is just sort of a new set of rules in which we articulate and and develop physical theories. And it it has implications for all sorts of things. You know, if you look at the implications of quantum physics for information, it means any system that can store a zero or a one, that bit, if you really fully describe it in this quantum mechanical language that's been developed for over a century, it's a lot more complicated than just a zero and a one. And if you have several bits, it's even more complicated. But, you know, we as users don't need to worry about that. What it means is there's this sort of exponential richness in the bits that are lying inside a quantum computer. And our job is to try to see how we can benefit from that. So maybe another way to look at it, if you try to describe a quantum computer, again, it's, what is it? It's a box with some stuff inside. You know, you you send in some inputs, you get some outputs, right? For most people, that's what a computer is. And inside, of course, under the hood, there's some bits, which you, you know, send instructions to, they do something and you get an answer back. 
So it's really like a computer, except we're somehow benefiting from those quantum mechanical properties. Um, and, you know, if you try to simulate that with a regular computer, it gets exponentially, like completely insurmountable with even just a few hundred bits. And, and so what Feynman tried in the 80s was to say, what if we turn lemons into lemonade? What if we built a device, such a device, then it, it can solve certain problems that would be impossible to solve on a regular computer. But that's what quantum computing is all about, is actually building these computers and then finding really useful applications for them. And so are there types of problems that are well-suited for quantum computers? That's sort of the billion or maybe trillion dollar question that we've been pursuing for over 20 years now. And we're starting to get some insights into it. I think I would caution anyone who thinks we have all the answers that we're almost certainly wrong. It's like asking in the 50s and 60s, do we know what computers are going to be good for? Or in the 80s and 90s, what's the internet going to be good for? So we, we have some ideas. You know, One is building on Feynman's original idea, is you can use a quantum computer to really you know, efficiently simulate other physical systems with quantum properties. So maybe we can design new next generation materials, new substrates for the technologies you develop at Intel, or materials for capturing energy or transporting energy and so on, or new drugs. If you want to design a new material with all sorts of properties that are possible, you can easily define trillions and trillions and trillions of different configurations of atoms, right? And, and then you wonder, does this have the properties I want? You can't, you know, synthesize and test trillions of materials. So you want to simulate them on a computer and have a good guess as to what their properties might be. And then you simulate, you know, you implement a short list of these things. If it's truly a quantum material, there's no general purpose way to figure out, is it superconducting? Does it have this property or that property? But a quantum computer, again, it's not a magic box, but it gives us a really a good fighting chance at simulating and, and answering questions about these materials we were interested in potentially synthesizing. Um, then there's other problems which aren't so blatantly quantum in nature, but there's an array of optimization problems that we continue to explore where you want to optimally allocate resources. Can quantum help with those? In some cases, yes. Again, the point is not that it's a faster processor. It's that if you explore it in a quantum mechanical way, you can actually get the answer with vastly fewer steps. So instead of trillions and trillions of steps, you can get that answer with thousands of steps. So we're really trying to do fewer of these quantum operations to get some answer. Is there a type of compute that we already know quantum would not be good at? Proofs of impossibility are super hard. There are things where we kind of at least don't think they're going to be tremendously good at. And that's, for example, just mundane in a sense of just processing vast amounts of data bit by bit, right? Because looking up classical information and loading it into a quantum computer, uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, a free lunch there. A lot of the basic tasks um, that, that we do day to day, we're not aware of a, of a quantum speed up. In fact, one might argue for most things, we're not aware of a quantum speed up. But the point is for some really, really important things, there's an immense potential quantum speed up. I've heard it described before that quantum computers, they don't do things sequentially. They, they basically do them all at the same time. And so instead of doing step one, two, three, four, five, or something like that, they, they do one through five, but yeah. at the same time. Is that a 
Is that a fair way to think about quantum computing? So yes and no. So it's a very quantum answer. Yes and no and everything in between. Yeah, and everything in between. That's true. So remember I talked about the trillions of configurations of, of molecules or materials where you kind of want to test them all, see which ones might have the properties you're looking for. So classically, you could have one serial processor go through them one at a time, you know, or you could have thousands of processors going through them in parallel. Uh, but if you want to test a trillion configurations, you have to one way or another compute a trillion things, right? What one quantum computer could do, it can kind of embody all trillion or more of those configurations and calculate their properties all at the same time, right? But there's a tremendous caution there in that if you have a you know a thousand processors calculating all these properties, you actually have all that information sitting there of all the different thousand configurations. You're not going to have a trillion processors, right? But with the quantum parallelism, where in theory you have these trillions of different configurations sitting there in this one quantum computer, you don't get full access. It's not like having a trillion classical computers in parallel. So it's somewhere in between, as Camille kind of mm. is hinting at it. So in some sense, you're getting a you're getting a little taste of all these trillions of different computational paths in parallel, but you don't get the full meal deal. Like you don't you don't right. get all the information out. I sometimes call it seeing the forest but not looking at the trees. So you can start to extract some sort of global properties of these trillions of configurations without actually learning much or anything about any specific one. Of course, over time, you'd like to finally converge to one good one, but it's a really difficult art. How do I somehow interfere all these different combinations and extract a property that I care about? So let's just suppose this is not doesn't apply in material design, but let's say I have these trillions of different configurations, a first one, a second one, a third one. I can enumerate them. I could compute them all in parallel or serially, but there's a pattern. At some point, these bit patterns, these pictures, let's say these are pictures, they start to repeat. That repetition rate, the period after which this pattern starts to repeat, that's a global property. I don't care what these billion images are, but I just want to know when does it start to repeat. Quantumly, you can really, with one glimpse, determine that global pattern, that periodicity. That's one property where quantum is absolutely amazing at. Right, So it's not good at all sorts of other pattern recognition problems, but that's one kind of pattern that it's it's actually just you know, almost built for. Right. That's why I think there's a lot of interest in quantum computing and its re relation to security, because in yeah. security, we use cryptography and cryptography has keys and we want to keep those keys safe. Yeah. And so can you talk a bit more about the direct link to security in quantum computing. When you use something like RSA cryptography or elliptic curve cryptography, which we use every day when we use our smartphones on the internet, we use a browser, HTTPS, there's a key agreement that's happening there. If you do like an RSA type key agreement, you encrypt one number with RSA with a fixed RSA key and another number with a fixed RSA public key and so on. Eventually, it actually starts to repeat. Now, these are astronomically large numbers, um, so large that classically we don't really have practical means to ever see that period with RSA. But if you could find that period, you could actually break the RSA keys. You could find the private keys associated with that public key. And that's good for key agreement. You can also use the same methods for signatures. And you might think, oh, but surely I could go to a bigger RSA key. No, you can't. 
Because normally where we're used to, like if some smart mathematician figures out a better way to factor, which people have in the 80s and 90s, you're like, okay, well, I'll add 10 more bits, you know, a few more bits to my RSA keys or maybe double them. Because with RSA, if you had a handful of bits, you double the work an attacker has to do. But with a quantum attack, it's it's almost even. The attacker has to do about as much work as the person using the encryption scheme. So you can't just go to bigger keys. So this is really uh, a devastating blow. It's not the kinds of things we saw before where we thought, oops, we better go to a, a slightly bigger key. It was like, oops, we need a whole new system here. And in crypto, you, you could have a sort of a unexpected break that breaks more than one algorithm even. So is this like an existential threat to device functionality for devices that are being released now that will be out in the world operating and doing maybe even driving for us or yeah. you know operating smart grids or something like that that we plan not to replace within the next 10 years and then we'll have quantum? None of us really want to be over dramatic, but I don't know how else to put it. I, I think you're right in that if this is supposed to remain in the field... So, so let me back up, you know, it's sort of the fundamental equation of quantum risk management. And that is the quantum computer's not here. So let me worry about other things for now. That's not the right analysis. First of all, in some cases, not the cases you just mentioned, but the information being protected is long lived. These are, could be people's DNA, it could be national secrets, could be trade secrets. It's being recorded, could be recorded until you deploy new algorithms that can't be broken by quantum computers. So this is the so-called record now, decrypt later. Then there's the migration time. How long does it take you to migrate, to change your platforms, to be resilient to quantum attacks? That's why. So for the next Y years, you're stuck with those embedded systems or these algorithms you've baked in. You're supposed to provide Y years of confidentiality, say, or integrity. If quantum attacks happen in fewer than X plus Y years, you're not going to provide those X years of security. So applications that need to be especially worried or those where there's a big Y or and or a big X. Yet at the very least, you need some mechanism for updating of the cryptography to be resilient to these emerging quantum attacks. And really, so do I need to worry? In most cases, the answer now is yes. That doesn't mean panic. It doesn't mean you have to deploy something. You have to ship the crypto tomorrow, but it means you better be well on your way of those four stages to quantum readiness, which is understand what, what it means. And then the second one is what does it mean to you? The third phase is plan, right? And the fourth phase is deployment. That's when you're shipping new product, which has these quantum resistant methods baked in. I think with any moderately important system, uh, you really have to be well on your way and entering that third phase of, of planning and readiness. What worries me the most, I think, is the rushed migration. Well, you know the technology, you know the life cycle of your technology, the ones you were just talking about, some cases decades. Like if you want this technology in a plane that's going to be flying, it's decades in advance that it has to be designed in in some cases. So what happens if you suddenly face a crisis? You're like, now I need to very quickly rush out new software of any kind, right? It doesn't work very well. If you don't do all the quality assurance, things start to crash. Things don't interoperate. You're going to lose customers. You're going to lose the business functionality. And furthermore, when you rush out the design of software, especially, again, even just regular software, a lot of the hacking we see today, people are exploiting just generic software bugs. But if you mess up the cryptography, that's a really bad piece of software to mess up. If you rush that out the door, 
You don't need some sophisticated criminal service that, it, that hacks into quantum computers. Mundane attack vectors can, can get in. That is perhaps at least as worrisome as the risk of quantum-enabled attacks. I think it's fascinating the picture you're pa- painting, which is this, you know, these types of problems that are good for quantum computing pose a significant risk to the established security industry that exists today. But you've mentioned that there are at least research around quantum resistant uh, algorithms or quantum resistant. Is that an active area of research, first of all? And second, is there such a thing as something that is quantum resistant and also resistant to more traditional attacks? Or is it kind of one or the other? So definitely, we know how to fix the problem. But doing it in practice is a long, complicated process that you don't want to rush and mess up. There's two flavors of answers. One is, let's replace the current public key crypto with new public key crypto designed to be resilient to quantum attacks, at least the known quantum attacks. That is already a 10-year-plus process that has already been underway for many years. The National Institute of Standards and Technology is going to announce its finalists in a few months. It'll still take another year or two to finalize the right, you know, the completion of the standards, but we'll know what the algorithms are for this first generation of standards. It's too soon to pick a winner and stop working on this because we still don't fully understand the power of quantum computers, right? So we're going with the best thing we know today, and we, we need to continue exploring and standardizing new algorithms as we gain better insights into what, what, what algorithms are secure against quantum attacks. That'll form the new first layer of defense that'll replace how we do HTTPS today. I mean, it'll still be HTTPS. How you achieve the S part will be new algorithms. But I would say that's probably not good enough anymore. And there's several ways to achieve additional layers of defense. So an alternative way to do key agreement is called quantum key agreement or quantum key distribution. That's been commercialized, honestly, for about 20 years with very modest adoption. But now, now it's becoming showtime for deploying large-scale QKD networks as an additional layer of defense in addition to these you know, conventional cryptographic algorithms. And they're very complementary. So to answer your question, we never know if a mathematical algorithm is unbreakable. Typically over time, eventually somebody finds a way to break it one way or another. But the nice thing about quantum key agreement is there's no mathematical assumption underlying it anymore. It's an alternative to key agreement where we don't have to go to bed at night and worry about whether a smart mathematician somewhere in the world has figured out how to break this cryptographic algorithm that underpins our digital technologies. Before we let you go, we do have one last segment we like to do that we call Fun Facts. McKelly, do you have a fun fact that you would like to share with folks? Many people have you know, seen movies and so on about the Enigma code that Alan Turing and others figured out how to break, and the British built the machine to, to break it. Uh, but often people oversimplify it, and they're actually conflating two different codes. The Enigma code was for tactical communication, as you would have seen in the movies. But the strategic codes were using a family of codes called the fish codes. And a young British mathematician at the time, Bill Tut, you know, a team of people, they figured out how to break these codes And the government built Colossus in order to implement those algorithms to break those codes. And it said this is one of the greatest, you know, intellectual feats, you know, the Second World War. And then Bill Tut 
moved to Canada actually to Toronto and then to Waterloo and he was actually a formative figure in our, in our mathematics faculty here and nobody knew he had done this wow until like the late 1990s hmm. this is you know one of the greatest mathematicians of the 20th century and no he just never bothered you know well, not never bothered he wasn't supposed to tell anyone and very serendipitously he supervised people who supervised pe- you know who supervised me and got me into cryptography right and people who ended up by a fluke ended up getting into cryptography and and then developing elliptic curve cryptography from an academic, an ingenious academic idea into a, a globally deployed commercial product. Hmm. That's that's a great fun fact. Camille, how about you? Well, um, I was just going to share a novel that I'm reading because I really like it. I'm in the middle of it. It's called The Five Wounds by Kirsten Valdez Quaid. And it's just really, really well written and a good story. That's my fun fact. Excellent. Well, I found actually that the use of evergreen trees to celebrate the winter season occurred even before the birth of Christ. That was interesting, but there's it goes on even further. The first decorated Christmas tree was, I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, it's like Riga, R-I-G-A, in Latvia, and that was in 1510. And the first printed reference to the Christmas trees appeared in Germany in 1531. So the whole tradition around, first of all, just, you know, what we now call Christmas trees actually is well over 2000 years old. But uh, as we would call them Christmas trees and the decoration of those actually started all the way back in the 1500s. So... McKelly, uh, thank you very much for opening our eyes to this quantum world of ones and zeros and everything in between and, and how it will impact security and evolve things the way we think about uh, today. It was a fascinating conversation. It's yeah, been a pleasure to talk with both of you. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.